Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have a conversation with Doug Newman, co-founder and CEO at RPO, where his team is eliminating the undifferentiated heavy lifting associated with disaster recovery for cloud-native workloads. RPO's technology helps companies like Finair and Scott's miracle Grow mitigate disaster risk streamline compliance and maximize service levels by fully automating the backup and disaster recovery process for their AWS environment. And before RPO, Doug led software engineering teams building highly resilient cloud architectures at Bandwidth and Microsoft. In this episode, we discuss the best practices for good data protection hygiene when moving to the cloud, disaster recovery tips, and keeping safe from ransomware, whether on-prem or in the cloud. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Doug. How are you today? Doing great, Demetrius. Thanks. All right. So I'm excited to have you on. And why don't you just start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your role and also RPO, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. My name is Doug Newman. I'm one of the founders of a company called RPO. And RPO is a disaster recovery solution for cloud workloads. We focus on Amazon Web Services and automating, orchestrating all of the native capabilities of the AWS platform to deliver the DR solution that's not built into AWS. So customers don't have to build it themselves effectively. Uh, My background is in software engineering. I've been doing this cloud thing for a little over a decade and been working in IT for a little over two. And so I've got a decent perspective on this problem. I'd be interested to bounce some ideas around with you today. All right. Well, awesome. Awesome, awesome. I I know the listeners are excited to hear what you have to say. AWS is a huge platform, and I think I read something where Microsoft Azure uh, actually is gaining ground like really, really fast on, on AWS. Did you read that? I think Azure is doing an incredible job and Microsoft is doing a really incredible job of taking their install on-prem footprint and moving those people into the Azure cloud, capturing them there. So, uh, you know, Amazon's still the biggest. And I think to some extent, when you're that size, it's just harder to continue to grow at the same clip. But I think Microsoft and Google as well are build, both building fantastic platforms that uh, are giving AWS a run for the money. Well, awesome. Let's talk a little bit about data protection and some of the good habits and bad habits. And obviously, everything is digital now. Everyone's walking around with the cell phone in their hand and even babies as early as, you know, six months, seven, eight months. They can they can't even talk, but they can swipe. (laughs) Left and right on an iPad, right? Yeah. (laughs) uh, Technology has become the new babysitter. So it used to be TVs, televisions, and now it's, you know, mobile devices and iPhones, et cetera. But talking about data, everything is generating data. And the question I have for you, Doug, is why do you think companies sometimes forget best practices and 
they just have horrible data protection habits, and especially when they move to the public cloud. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so it, it's an interesting question. When I think about the move people make, you know, specifically going from on-premises into the cloud, a couple things stand out for me. One is that oftentimes the, the first movements into the cloud that happen within organizations, and certainly organizations I've been part of, uh, they don't actually start on the ops side of things. It starts on the development side of things. And so you end up with the first workloads that move out there maybe aren't production workloads, or they're brand new workloads that are being launched, but they're not business critical yet. Um, and they're being operated and launched by people who aren't you know, veteran IT ops people, and they don't necessarily even understand the problem that you're trying to solve with data protection and what it looks like to solve that well and how to mitigate those risks. And I think it's really exacerbated by what is probably the right answer to your question, which is that people just go on faith that their cloud provider has them protected, that uh, you know the cloud scales forever and it never goes down kind of thing. But they have to learn uh, and they have to really peel back the covers to understand really what what does AWS or Azure or GCP, what do they do for me? And what's left for me to do from a data protection perspective? Yeah, there's a lot of education that's still needed around just cloud and you know running workloads in the cloud and being cloud native, et cetera. There is a thing called the shared responsibility model that everyone has been touting and pushing for quite some time. And I still read surveys that say 30, 40, 50, 60% of people that are using SaaS applications especially still think that their data protection is the responsibility of that public cloud vendor, yeah, which is not the case. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And I'm, I'm sure you have dedicated a portion of, of your time and your studies and as you're coding and you created RPO, you know, along with your co-founder. What was one of the reasons why you, you decided to take that, that stand, put the stake in the ground and say, you know what, here's what we are going to build and why we're going to build it. Yeah, that's a great question. So the origin story of RPO goes back to 2017. And in February of 2017, I was leading a software engineering organization for a voice over IP backbone provider. And I was the guy who had pushed us to move workloads into AWS. I was standing up saying that uh, we could deliver the five nines of availability that telecom customers are used to receiving in the AWS platform. And I was very wrong one day when an AWS employee who was performing a routine maintenance operation made a typo. And that typo brought down the largest region of AWS for about five hours one afternoon. <laughs> wow. Um, and a five-hour yeah. outage in the telecom world is a lifetime. So yeah, it uh, is. that was a very painful day. I distinctly remember the you know, CEO of the company asking me, when will we be back online? And he wasn't terribly happy when my answer was, as soon as Amazon gets us back online. So uh, I learned a big lesson that day, just about, about that shared responsibility, the point you're making. But you know, there's a lot of resilience built into these cloud platforms. But in the end of the day, they're, they're not taking away risk. There will be outages. There will be data loss. 
And it's on us as the consumers of those platforms to figure out what that means for our business and how do we mitigate that? How do we protect ourselves? Okay, so let, let's go ahead and draw a line in the sand to call out, I guess, what some of the data protection features and functionality are built into the public cloud, if there are any. And if there are any, or if there are any features, what are the cloud users responsible for building themselves? So it's a great, great question. And I, I'll start by saying, I think it goes beyond just data protection. I think there's just also service availability that comes into play here. With, with what we're doing with RPO, our focus is disaster recovery. And those disasters could be massive data loss events, or it could be platform outages and whatnot. There are lots of data protection features built into AWS in particular. I, I'm not an expert on Azure and GCP, but I believe they have parallel feature sets. There's a lot of stuff that's built in there, and there's a lot of mechanisms they give you to build highly resilient workloads. But in the end of the day, it's on you to go figure out what does that look like for your particular environment. And when you do that, you go look at something like AWS. I, the number of services in AWS exceeds like 200 at this point. Um, nobody, nobody understands all of this complexity. And... But to, to go and figure out what it looks like for you to protect your workloads in AWS, you have to go identify all of those services that you're consuming. And what are all of the data protection features built into those services? And how do I use those for my workload and cobble together a disaster recovery solution on top of what are really just some basic backup foundations and data replication foundations? So if you go look at like, uh, yes, about what's built in, uh, if you are running virtual machines in AWS on EC2, well, there are abilities to take snapshots of the underlying disks of those servers that you're running. And then there's an ability to share those snapshots and copy them into a different region or into a different security domain. But you've got to go cobble all that stuff together and either write your own automation or find a solution that does that for you. And then you go look at, you're also using maybe S3 for object storage. And S3 is incredible. It's got 11 nines of durability is the metric that they, they advertise, which means you should never lose data pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, unless right. yeah. somebody comes along, bad actor, and just deletes your data or ransomwares you or does something like that, in which case you're on the hook. You've got very durable bad data at that point in time. So um, you've got to go figure out, what does it look like for me to go and protect this? And how do I apply the techniques that are built into that S3 service? So long story short, like there's, there's a lot of data protection capabilities in the cloud, but it's left for you to go figure out how to assemble that. And most businesses should probably actually be spending more of their time and money building new customer-facing capabilities, doing things that actually strategically differentiate them from their competitors. Building disaster recovery and data protection is not the best investment of their time. And it's not sexy either. It's, it's uh, you know what, it, it used to be hard work and now with low code, no code and drag and drop and there's a lot of different options out there from when I started back in you know, 15, 20 years ago. It was it was not sexy at all, and it was the work of, you know, individuals who really, really, really wanted to 
be technical and kind of own something that no one else knew. You had to have a specialized skill set. And, and nowadays, I, I just like I, I just read a story about someone that was a nurse and she took an online course or class to become a ServiceNow administrator, which over the course of six months. So she went from being a licensed nurse to a ServiceNow developer in six months. So I hear stories like that all the time, just with the technology. But my point is, is that it's so simple now and it's so easy to, you know, manage the data and to also learn because, you know, all these public cloud vendors have provided a space that makes it super easy to build and to create. And the one thing that's being created is data, right? But one thing that's hard to do is actually protect that data and to save it for a, a rainy day in case, you know, there's a bad actor or there's an accidental deletion or something like that. And so what I understand is that your technology, you've put the hard work in along with your founder and you guys are trying to figure out every day the best way to automate, make it easy and make it simple to get get back up and running if something happens, especially if a region goes down, there's a blip, then you've already kind of created a process to do that. Now, how, how difficult was it to sit down and, and really think about how you're going to take all of those components? Because people have to do it manually, right? They have to manually piece together the network and all the virtual machines and this application has to come up before this application. There's a lot that goes along with it. What was the thought process behind kind of creating something that could make that process automated and much simpler? Well, yeah, well, if we go back to that outage I was telling you about in 2017, you know, in the aftermath of that, we had to go build our own disaster recovery solution. We couldn't look our, our leadership in the face again and tell them that we didn't have control in those kinds of events or whatever. So we went and we built it for our workload. And that did mean, you know, uh, automating stuff that had previously been manual, figuring out how to duct tape together the various features of the services that we were using and whatnot. Um, and what stood out to us in that was that it just seemed like this should be built in. Like you shouldn't have to build DR in 2017 or 2022 as it is today. Um, and it should just be a switch you could turn on in the, in the console and you get protection from everything from a natural disaster to an AWS outage to a ransomware event or a disgruntled employee going thermonuclear on your environment kind of thing. And so as we as we built that, I think that just really stuck with me. And that's kind of the genesis of how we got to RPO was, was we had to build it once ourselves. We recognized that the techniques we were using were broadly applicable. And that if somebody had just come along and done this, if AWS had gone to the trouble of doing this, then they could actually just forklift your running workload and move it into a different part of the cloud and get you back online anytime you're down. So that that really is. And I think the other thing that's really was a big epiphany for us was it's it's about more than the data. You know, we talk a lot about data protection on the data protection gumbo, but in the cloud, everything is virtual. Yeah, like your network and your security settings and auto scaling strategies, identity, access management, all that kind of stuff, it's all virtual. It's all ones and zeros. It's all data. And so you can just go back all of that up. And so what's really unique to what we've done with RPO is said, let's let's look beyond the database and the server and let's look at the entire environment and go and apply the techniques necessary to be able to back everything up and move all of that into an air-gapped 
you know, virtual air gap location and then be able to recover all of that in the event of a major outage and pull it all back together. You know, I like to tell people with our, with RPO, like in 30 minutes, we can, you can configure RPO to be protecting your entire AWS environment. And then when you have an outage, we can bring that up in a different part of the cloud as quickly as Amazon can launch your servers for you. So, you know, that's typically measured in minutes as well. And I remember when doing DR exercises, it was a physical event where, you know, I would have to, you know, do some planning and schedule a flight to New Jersey, big IBM data center there. And one of the Hawkins, you know, we Hawkins, C Hawkins, you know, one of those cities that had the uh, IBM disaster recovery places. Mm -hmm. Yep, there's many Hawkins. And um, there was a lot of people that had to to be, you know, rallied and coordinated. And so what, what you're essentially saying is that you are kind of taking the person out of it per se, like the network administrator may not have to go and configure a thousand rules and set up some switches and routers and get the IP addresses right and the subnets and, you know, all of these things because you're essentially taking that, abstracting it, and making sure that that stuff is captured so it can be recovered with the click of a button. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Amazon has already virtualized all of that stuff that in your Hawken data centers was physical stuff. Mm -hmm, right. uh, they won't even let you come into the data center at, at AWS. <laughs> but yeah. um, because it's all virtualized, we can go and back all that up and we can recreate that, that routing table with all the routing rules. We can redefine the firewall exactly how it was set up. We can make sure that all the IP address space ports uh, appropriately. And then everything comes up and it just works. Got it. Okay. And what what's the difference between a cloud-based workload and on-premise workload, I guess from a disaster perspective, because I'm assuming it would look quite different. And why does... I guess you would need a, a new approach or a different approach for a cloud-based workload versus like one that's on-premises. Well, you know, a lot of people when they when they first use the cloud, they are just doing a lift and shift of their on-premises workload into the cloud, and so architecturally, their cloud environment looks very similar to their data center does, which means you're probably running a bunch of virtual machines. Um, you've got you know a network that is configured, you know, on. Amazon's network technology instead of Cisco network technology, but it's configured in an analogous way. But as you really embrace what makes the cloud unique and you start to leverage, you know, manage services for things like your database, you don't want to actually have to install and run an Oracle server anymore. If Amazon can run that Oracle server for you for an appropriate price and, and you don't have to deal with all that low-level complexity. So you start to embrace these managed services for uh, data and compute and everything else. And at that point, it starts to look a lot different. So the techniques that you used for on-premises DR were largely about how do I replicate my virtual machines? How do I replicate VMs into a different data center or more frequently into one of the cloud platforms um, and then launch those there, but fundamentally, the workload is a suite of virtual machines that you just need to bring up. And when you get into the cloud and you start to avail yourself of, you move beyond VMs and you're using managed compute. Uh, it might be serverless compute. It might be containerized compute. You're using managed services, and your your database has now moved out of, let's say, Postgres and into Amazon's Aurora. Um, 
you've you've got to go figure out now how to cobble together all of these different things. And it's no longer just what do I do to snapshot my VM, copy it to another data center, and then bring it up. So that's that's what makes DR harder in the cloud is the heterogeneity of that environment, uh, and the fact that you have to go solve this problem a dozen times for a dozen different services you're using. But what makes it easier is that it's all virtual, it's all automatable. Uh, you can actually write software that will go describe your entire cloud environment and back all that up and then go recreate it in another area. And uh, that's effectively what we've done with RPO is, is that very thing uh, so that people don't have to go build that themselves. You know, I'm sure you've seen quite a bit of disasters, right? Especially ones in the cloud and different cases that, that you have recovered for. What, what does a cloud disaster look like from, from your perspective? And I'm curious to find out, I guess, what are some of your risks or what are some of the risks that our listeners should really be trying to mitigate from that perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think first off, people, when they think disaster, they think natural disaster. And while those are relevant, they're not prevalent. And there's a lot of resilience and robustness built into these cloud platforms so that they can endure, you know, things like a fire in the data center or, um, you know, a power outage, temporary power outage associated with something like a hurricane or something like that. So while, while you do need to contemplate those, the, the real disasters that we've seen in AWS in particular are, are platform outages um, and, you know, I gave you the example of the, the typo made by an AWS employee back in 2017. You know, more recently, Amazon had a rough month in December, and there were three notable outages in December, the biggest of which was actually a scalability limit. Uh, um, I think I remember, I remember that one. Yeah. And so if yeah. you think about like the, just the size of the Northern Virginia region of AWS is so large, I don't know that there's any compute infrastructure in the world that rivals it. Um, and what that means is that Amazon can't scale test their workloads before they deploy them. They have techniques to deploy them incrementally and identify these kinds of issues up front. But occasionally, they're going to run into a scale scalability bug, and it's likely going to happen when they deploy to that one particular gigantic region of AWS. And... When they do that and it takes them down, then you're down as long as it takes for them to uncover it. So they had a seven-hour outage, I believe it was, back in December that was all related to a scale-up event that flooded a network and some DNS stuff uh, happened. There's a great write-up about the root cause of it. And was that also, was that also during like a um, Black Friday or some special event? Or was that just a normal upgrade from that? This one happened, I think, the second week of December. It was the week after the whole AWS community had been in Las Vegas for the annual reInvent conference, and right on the heels of that. reInvent is kind of a, a point in time where uh, there's a lot of new functionality being launched for reInvent, and there's a lot of teams inside AWS that are deploying new stuff, and it just seems uncanny how it goes down. I think the Black Friday one you're thinking about, though, was a year prior uh, they had a deployment. Black Friday is obviously on a Friday. They were deploying on Wednesday, advance of Black Friday, of, you know, the day before Thanksgiving. And um, they hit a similar scale issue where they were scaling up a service that's called Kinesis, and it took Kinesis down. I think the end-to-end the -end outage time was like 17 hours. 
And you know, a lot of companies don't use Kinesis, but they use other services in AWS that are built on Kinesis. So suddenly, you know, the monitoring alarms, metrics weren't flowing, and auto-scaling events weren't happening. And so that the ripple effect of that scale issue being encountered at Kinesis spread. And that that was, you know, the classic. Yeah. I don't know how they would have scale tested Kinesis outside of production um, wow. to encounter that any earlier. So anyways, but you'd asked about like risks and we've talked a lot about Amazon outages and I don't want to like beat up too much on them because they actually have an incredible track record for availability. Um, the other risks though that I find people just don't think enough about, this community is probably much better about it, is cyber risks. And uh, yeah, yeah. The ransomware events, there's a, a famous story that happened not you know, I think it was also a couple of years ago that a Cisco WebEx employee left the company, he was disgruntled, and three months later figured out he still had access to the production environment, and he deleted 456 VMs out of their production AWS account. And they had a two-week two outage, you know, it cost them millions of dollars to repair it. But these are these kind of cyber events where a bad actor or a disgruntled employee gets into your environment and goes and does horrendous things. And, you know, your disaster recovery plan is your last line of defense so that if that does happen to you, it's how you're going to get back online. Yeah. And w w once again, comparing, you know, like on-premises infrastructure versus, you know, running it in the cloud. And just from a security perspective, are, are there any differences when, when you're talking about protecting data in the cloud from things like ransomware or a disgruntled employee versus an on-prem environment? What, what are the differences if there are, Doug? The same stuff applies in the cloud that applies on premises. That if if somebody ransomware is they, they manage to hack their way into your environment, they deploy some malware and ransomware your environment, they can do that in the cloud just as well as they can do it on premises. Uh, but I think there's a, a different frontier, a different attack vector that lives in the cloud that you don't have to deal with on premises. And that is mm -hmm. what we call the control plane of the okay, cloud, the yeah. API surface area. And the idea being that if it's a, it's a whole new attack vector that people can get a hold of and they can go do interesting and bad things for you. So, you know, that Cisco WebEx thing was an example. This guy had access to the control plane and used it to go delete the servers. He didn't actually have to connect to the servers and do have any access to the servers at all to go and do that. And I think if you think about, you know, in a typical organization, you've got administrators for your IT environment and when that IT environment runs in the cloud, these people typically have broad administrative privileges within your cloud environment so that they might have the ability to just go and completely destroy everything in that environment. And you know, hopefully they'd never use that, uh, but there are stories where they have. And there's also scenarios where they get hacked or their laptop gets stolen and they've stored their access tokens in the well-known credentials file that, that people store AWS access tokens on their machine. And now you've got a bad actor who has inherited that administrative access and they could go and blow everything away. And if, if you're a company that's worth a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars, and the value of that company is contingent upon the data and the operations of those IT systems, which is the case for pretty much any company anymore. You, you have to invest to protect that. It's irresponsible not to. I, I would say so as well. And 
we still have cases where we're where we are we are hearing that since they're running in the cloud, everything is fine and dandy until that that outage event happens. And there's more education that's happening. People are slowly learning now and they're dedicating budgets to things like, you know, security and protecting against ransomware. It's been a public uh, conversation now. The, you know, White House and President of the United States, they've been making mention of cybersecurity and rolling out new new systems and plans to kind of wrap their arms around cybersecurity overall. And let's begin to wrap up here. I think I have one more question for you, Doug. I'm curious. So what if you were speaking to a C-level executive such as yourself, like a CIO, CTO, or maybe even a CISO? What's that one nugget of wisdom that you would give them overall if there was only one thing that they they had to do and you only had like two minutes in the elevator with them? Like, how would you how would you really relay that message and get them to get off the elevator and immediately go and double check whether or not they they're doing those those things to protect their data yeah i mean i I think it just comes back to that they they need to have thought through disaster recovery as that insurance policy that hopefully they'll never need but a lot of people focus on how do i keep the bad actors out of my environment but they still eventually get in and your backups your dr is your savior in that case make sure you've got that in place Similarly, with uh, cloud platform outages or just any IT outage, understand the redundancy that you do have and that you don't have and what it means for your business if that platform were to fail. And those failures have historically been measured in hours. And that's a time that a lot of companies are, are willing to tolerate if necessary. But uh, it is possible that those failures could be much longer depending on what happens. And your business might not be able to make payroll next month if you have some massive event this month. Data protection and disaster recovery are not things people are ever excited to invest in, spend money on, spend their time on, but it is irresponsible not to do it. And so they need to, to factor that into the big picture and make sure that they haven't forgotten that they need to protect their their essential IT systems. All right. And before I let you go, I'm sure you are reading something. What's one book recommendation you can leave for the Gumbo listeners? All right. So I'm reading a book right now. It's called Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. In the end of the day, like we are, anytime we're talking to somebody about fundraising, it's a business transaction. There's a negotiation that goes into it. And the more you understand about what's happening on the other side, the better prepared you are for it. So, Awesome. And w- one thing that I, I, I get, um, I get lost in Reddit. Like there's a startup thread or something that goes that, that people put questions in about VC funding. And I am a new startup founder and I'm looking, you know, to figure out if this percentage of uh, stake in my company is too much. I mean, there's some interesting conversations that go on, but it's like panning for gold in that in that thread uh, but i'm sure a book like this would kind of take you straight to the point definitely and it's less about valuations i wish somebody would help us understand i'd love to see what's what's happening on the inside of some of the deals i've seen come out of silicon valley in the past year but mm-hmm. but it's really more about the terms on those valuations and um, how to how to understand like what they're really motivated by and, and whatnot so it's been fascinating 
Well, awesome. Doug, it's definitely been a, been a pleasure to have you on Data Protection Gumbo. I've, I've learned quite a bit here. And I, I wish you guys much success as you, you move forward in this space. And things are changing rapidly. And uh, just send out some, some good vibes for, for you guys over there at RPO to um, get that valuation that you're seeking and that, that funding and all that good stuff coming up soon for you. Awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, Demetrius. It's, uh, it's great to connect with you here. And I'd love to do it again in the future. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.